Praise the Lord, everybody. Isn't God good to us? Well, I'll tell you what. You can color me impressed. I'm so thankful for all of you. So thankful for the great liberty of the Holy Ghost that is in this room. And if you are from the community and this is the first time or maybe the first few times you've visited here, this is a wonderful and powerful church. This is a great and safe place to serve the Lord and grow in God with your family. This is just a wonderful group of people. And I am so honored and so thankful and so pleased uh, to be able to share this Sunday with you and the conference we've just had. And uh, I've been watching some of you. Uh, your stories, I don't know them all. But I know bits and pieces from Pastor every once in a while. He'll mention some little thing. Somebody that has a testimony or saw a miracle. or And I'm so grateful for every one of you. This is the great family of God all around the world. My goodness. Wow. I wasn't intending on going the direction that we're going to go tonight, but I, I feel like the Lord put it on my heart to share with you. And uh, I think it will be a blessing to you. And especially if you're new to this wonderful apostolic faith, I think it will be a blessing to you. Would you lift up your hands one more time? Would you lift up your voice and just thank God for the liberty of his spirit? that is already in this place. That's not going to change. The word carries its own liberty. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We honor you. We're expecting such great things from you. Lord God, we thank you for the move of your spirit. Thank you for lives that have already been touched and changed and healed in your presence tonight. We give you great glory. Everybody said amen. Amen. You may be seated subject for your consideration tonight is simply called the last word. It is entirely accurate to say that the Apostle John has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament for several reasons. You could pick any one of a half dozen. John is described six times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. John sits closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. He's a first cousin to Jesus. Their mothers were sisters. He is the last one to leave the cross at Jesus as Jesus is dying. And he is the disciple entrusted in Jesus' last moments on the cross with the care of Jesus' mother Mary. So you could argue that John is the closest of all the disciples to Jesus. He's obviously the final authority or the last word on the life and the death of Jesus. And John has the last word for another reason. His writing is incredibly powerful because the ministry and the words of Jesus are burned in his brain and seared in his spirit even many decades after the fact. John's memory is so keen that he still remembers the hour that he met Jesus. It was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He vividly recalls little details. There were six water pots at the wedding in Cana. The Samaritan woman left her water pot in her excitement to share her testimony. An anonymous cripple at the pool of Bethesda had been sick for 38 years. The high priest's servant was named Malchus. 
Who remembers details like that 60 years after the fact? But John does. And John must have handled the financial end of the fishing business for his father Zebedee because there was enough of an accountant in him to remember what the feeding of the 5,000 would have cost if they'd had to pay for it. He says it was 200 penny worth. And John remembers all these things, not just because he's got a good memory. He remembers them because he was an eyewitness. Here's what he says in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Watch this. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and we bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So John is an eyewitness. But other disciples were eyewitnesses too. So there must be more to John having the last word than just all of the above. And I think there is. You see, John was the last surviving elder of the first century. His gospel, his three epistles, his book of Revelation are the final documents of the New Testament written by any of the apostles. Revelation is placed last in your Bible, but chronologically speaking, all five of John's books belong at the end of the Scripture. And he puts his pen on that parchment more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost. And John is very aware, I'm the only original voice left. I'm the only elder still standing. Matthew and Mark and Luke are gone. They wrote their gospels some 30 years previous. His friend Peter's gone, crucified upside down at his own request. He didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. And the pen of the apostle Paul has been silenced forever when he was beheaded by Nero. But you see, all of those deaths, all of those losses are 30 years in the rearview mirror. So when John writes his gospel sometime after A.D. 90, he really does have the last word because he's the only one left. And he is determined in his heart. I am going to anchor the next generation of apostolics to the truth that was given at the beginning by the Lord Jesus. And that's why his gospel is unique. You see, by the close of the first century, False teaching and false doctrine is already beginning to rear its ugly head in the church. And that's why the Gospel of John does something special, something even further than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does more than any other Gospel writer to tell us not just what Jesus did and not just where Jesus went and not just what Jesus said, but John is determined to tell us who Jesus is. And I stand here in this pulpit of this great apostolic church tonight to tell you if we lose the revelation of who Jesus is, is, no other revelation matters and we just become like every other religion. First John chapter 5, John wrote, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. There's not three up there, there's just one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, the three elements of our salvation. And these three agree in one. They're not one, but they work together as one. Now, the operative, the emphasized word in those verses is not three. The emphasized word is one. 
God is one. These three, blood, water, and spirit, work together in one. John is not alluding to a trinity because at this point in church history, there is no such thought. There's no such doctrine. It only occurs in paganism. And there are trinities, many of them in history. In the Far East, India has a trimurti, Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva. Israel's ancient slave master, Egypt, has a trinity, Osiris, Horus, and Isis. Israel's archenemy, Babylon, has a trinity, Nimrod, Tammuz, Semiramis. The brilliant Greeks, they have a trinity, Zeus, Apollo, and Athena. The brutal Romans have their capitaline triad, Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. And every time Israel backslid, they began to serve a Canaanite trinity, Baal, Molech, and Ashtoreth. That is not what John is talking about. He's not talking about three gods. He's not talking about that. He's echoing these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Lord. That's the revelation of the apostolic church. That's the revelation of the New Testament. That's the revelation that Jesus came to bring us. So from his opening sentence, John is on a mission. He is determined to prove that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. He's the true and the only God in a body of flesh. And so as you read it, you'll notice 90% of John's gospel is unique. He's very selective about the miracles he records. Some are unique only to him. You wouldn't know about the raising of Lazarus from the dead if it hadn't been for John's gospel. And the miracles that he does record, he does something unique. He twins them with Jesus' teaching. All four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, but John records Jesus' powerful sermon, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. John's Gospel is unique. There are no parables in John, but there are many conversations, sometimes lengthy ones. Everywhere, Jesus is talking to people, and he's revealing his identity and his will. John has many unique features in his gospel. 25 times Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly. And every time he uses that double amen, he's calling attention to an important revelation. But it occurs only in this gospel of John. See, John isn't just writing a biography of Jesus. He's writing a theology of Jesus. And so John's gospel is very different. There is no Christmas story in John's gospel. No baby in a manger in Bethlehem, no shepherds, no wise men, no star, no angels in the heavens. Why? Because John knows that the birth of Jesus was well covered by Matthew and Luke when they wrote their gospels some 30 years earlier. And he also knows that the truth of the incarnation has been preached and believed by the New Testament church even longer, for about 60 years. So on this doctrine and on many other doctrines, John assumes something. He assumes something about anyone who will ever read his writing. He assumes that his readers already know what Jesus and the church preached and practiced. It's critically important for us in our understanding of Scripture to read the Gospel of John as the last word, to understand that John's Gospel comes after the other Gospels. John's Gospel comes after 
the epistles and the book of Acts. It does not come before them. Let me give you a, an example. Uh, John 3.16, powerful, beautiful verse. It's in John's gospel. No preacher in the New Testament ever stood up and took a text from John 3.16 and preached a sermon. You know why? John 3.16 was not written until all the epistles had been written, until all the apostles but John had died off. So although John 3.16 is a powerful verse, it was not preached by the New Testament's preachers. It was written down by John after all the rest of them had died. I'm not against John 3.16. I like you. I've got it memorized. I love it. I'm so glad that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. But in case you think that that was somehow what the New Testament church preached all by itself, let me tell you, no New Testament preacher preached from Acts two, from John 3.16. But every New Testament preacher preached Acts 2.38. That was the verse that turned their world upside down. So to put it plainly, John is given the last word in the Bible because he most clearly presents Jesus as the last word from God. Here's what John wants you to know. Jesus isn't just like God. He's not just sent from God. He's not just part of God. Here's what John needs you to know. Jesus is God in a body of flesh. That's why Jesus could say, I am come in my Father's name. I and my Father are one. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. God has always manifested himself in different ways. The burning bush, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. God's always manifested himself in different ways. But Jesus, according to Hebrews, is the ultimate manifestation of God. Hebrews 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, he spoke in time past unto the Father, by the prophet hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds watch this who being the brightness of his glory the express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high if you could be transported instantly to heaven tonight you wouldn't see a bunch of beings up there being worshipped you wouldn't see multiple thrones with multiple persons sitting on them. I'll tell you what you'd see. You'd see the angels flying around the throne of God, Jesus sitting on that throne, and every angel would be crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The Jesus you've been worshiping tonight, he is Almighty God. He is not the dead founder of our religion. His body is not decaying in a tomb in Jerusalem. He is alive and he's here tonight by the power of his spirit. That's why it feels different in here than any other building in this county. It feels different because Jesus is here by the power of his spirit. 
<laughs> you go all the way to the end of John's writings, Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's what John is trying to tell us. The Word is a person, and that person is Jesus. That's why John starts his gospel differently than Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's later. He's writing some 30 years later. And so there's false doctrine around. There's people starting to believe really crazy things as paganism and their culture is trying to infiltrate the church. So John wants to anchor us to apostolic doctrine. So he doesn't start his gospel with a genealogy or the ministry of John the Baptist or Bethlehem's story. Here's how he begins John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He's meaning for your mind to go back to the very first verse of the entire Bible. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Who was that? That was Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. Verse 14 and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we know right there the word was Jesus. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's amazing, brothers and sisters. 90% of John's gospel is unique even in the structure of his book. The first half of John's gospel covers three years of Jesus' ministry. Three years. And in that three years covered in the first half of the Gospel of John, John presents seven signs or miracles that prove Jesus' divinity. He turns water into wine. He heals a nobleman's son. He feed, heals a lame man, feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals a blind man, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And John loves sevens. They're everywhere in his gospel. There are seven titles of Jesus. There are seven sermons by Jesus. There are seven witnesses to Jesus' deity. And if you compare all four gospels, you'll even discover that there were seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross but there's more than that only in John's gospel does Jesus talk at such length about his identity and so John is the only gospel writer who intentionally records the seven I am statements of Jesus here they are Jesus says I am the bread of life I am the light of the world I am the door of the sheep I am the good shepherd I am the resurrection and the life he that believeth in me though he were dead yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the true vine. My goodness. Now here's the thing. It's invisible in the English scriptures. When we read I am, we only see a pronoun and a verb. I am, pronoun, verb. But it's very obvious in the ancient languages from which our Bible comes. In the Greek, it's ego I me. Here's the point. A carpenter from Nazareth 
is using the ancient name of God that was first revealed to Moses at the burning bush when God said, I am that I am. And now Jesus is walking around using that name to casually refer to himself. And that's why there are seven other times that Jesus uses I am or ego I me in reference to himself in John's gospel. In chapter 4, verse 26, he says, I am the one who speaks to you. I am, so be not afraid. If you believe that not that I am, you will die in your sins. He even says this, it's kind of strange. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. I love this one. In chapter 8, there's a running argument between Jesus and the religious leaders, and they're not happy with him. He looks at them and he says, before Abraham was... I am. I got to tell you, that's bad grammar. You should say, before Abraham was, I was, or before Abraham is, I am. But it's mixing the tenses if you're just using pronouns and verbs. Before Abraham was, I am. But he's not using just a pronoun and a verb. He's using that name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. He looked back at them. They said, who do you think you are saying all this? You're not even 30 years old. You're talking about Abraham. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I was there when I sent Abraham to find a land that he'd never seen. I was there to give him direction. I was there to talk with Abraham. My goodness. He said, when this has come to pass, you'll believe that I am. And three times in chapter 18, he said, I have told you that I am. So John spends the last half of his gospel summarizing just the last week of Jesus' life. This is different than any other gospel. The first half of John's gospel is the first three years of Jesus' ministry. The last half of John's gospel is just one week of Jesus' ministry. And he even spends five full chapters talking about the last conversation between Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. Now, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps saying to them, mine hour is not yet come. Mine hour is not yet come. Hold off, boys. It's not time for me to be revealed. But now he's saying the hour is come. And Jesus is a man on a mission. So after they eat the Passover meal and Jesus takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he knows that his betrayer, Judas, is already at work. And you can feel the pace of the Gospel of John start to pick up. John 18, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him. When the soldiers came with Judas into the garden to arrest Jesus, he goes forth and he said to them, Whom seek ye? And they answered, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus looks back at them and he says this, I am. Now I understand in the King James Bible it says I am he, but look at the word he, it's in italics. It's not there in the original. Jesus looked back at that entire band of soldiers and he used the name of God, which by the way was his right to use that name because he was God in a body of flesh. And as soon as he said that, 
I am, they went backward and they fell to the ground. With just the power of his name, Jesus knocked down an entire battalion of trained soldiers. What in the world do you think Jesus could do tonight with your situation in your home, with your sickness in your body? Just one mention of his name and anybody can be healed. One mention of his name, anybody can be delivered. Oh my goodness. See, it happens everywhere in the Gospel of John. Jesus speaks his name at a well, and a sinful woman's life was changed forever. He spoke his name in a storm, and a disciple named Peter was empowered to walk on the waves of the sea. And now he speaks his name in a garden at midnight, and an entire battalion of highly trained soldiers fall over on the ground like a pile of cordwood. So I understand. I live in 2024, too. I'm familiar with the great, wide, wacky, sometimes world of Christianity. I know that theologians today may have missed entirely what Jesus was saying, but the Pharisees caught the meaning all too well in John chapter 8. That's why they took up stones to try to stone Jesus, and that's why they finally orchestrated his crucifixion. They did not like that he looked at them and said, before Abraham was I am. They did not like that he looked at them and said, if you believe not that I am, you're going to die in your sins. If you don't get my identity right, there's no solution for your sin. And then he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, on that day you will know that I am. They don't get it, but it's prophetic. Now, let me just show you something, and this is kind of weird for a Sunday night, and I get that, but just hang tight. Buckle your seatbelt for a minute. See, what Jesus is saying to them, I am, in Hebrew, it would look quite different than in English. In Hebrew, it's just four letters, Y-H-W-H, or we would say Yahweh. And that name comes from four consonants, Yud, He, Vav, Hey, in Hebrew. Now, Hebrew reads uh, backwards to English. It reads from right over to left. So that's Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. And that is called the Tetragrammaton, four letters. Ancient Hebrew was written only in consonants, and so those who read it aloud in the synagogues, they had to supply the vowel sounds. There is no perfect exact translation for that name into English, so we just have to say something like the eternal. It's so powerful, that name. And in the English language, eventually, as not the word of God changed, but language changed, in English, we end up with uh, four different consonants, J, H, V, H, and we put in vowel sounds, and tonight we would say Jehovah. But it's all the same God, all referencing that same holy name. Now, the Jews, they had a problem at the time Jesus walked the earth. They were sent into Babylonian captivity. They were judged for their rebellion. And they came back from captivity around 450 B.C. And when they came back, a paranoia got a hold of the Jewish people. They were afraid that if anybody by accident blasphemed the name of God, maybe God would judge them again. They became terrified of using that name, yud heh vav Jehovah. Yahweh. They became terrified of using it. So they started passing laws. They outlawed the use of it among the common people. 
Can you imagine being a one God people in the Old Testament and all the pagans can say the names of their God, but there's a law and you can't say the name of your own God out loud. That's what they passed in about 450 B.C. Later, they passed another law. They said, you know, those Levites and priests, they might blaspheme the name of God accidentally. So first it was the common people couldn't say the name of God out loud. Then it was the Levites and the priests that couldn't say the name out loud. And then finally, only the high priest of Israel was left and only he could speak the name of God out loud. But they made a law. He could only say the name of God out loud one day a year when he went in behind the veil on the great day of atonement. Now from what we know from history, in 270 B.C., about 300 years before Jesus' crucifixion, a man named Simon was serving as the high priest of Israel. And when he died, they passed a total prohibition on using the name of God. And so Simon was the last high priest of Israel that we know that was permitted to speak the name of God out loud. And so they came up with a substitute word. If they were reading the scrolls, the scriptures in the synagogue, and they came to the name of God, the speaker would not say the name. He would say Adonai. It's a replacement word. Adonai simply means Lord. And so he would see that holy name of God in the scripture revealed to Moses at the burning bush, but he couldn't speak it out loud. Nobody could speak it out loud. Even the high priest couldn't speak it out loud. So instead of saying the name that he saw in the scriptures, he'd say Adonai, and the congregation would respond, Hashem, which means the name. They knew it was there. They knew it was powerful. They knew it was God's name. But can you imagine how ridiculous is this, that the one God people of the Old Testament, they were the only people in that time that could not say the name of their own God out loud. Man, I'm glad that's not us. I've heard the name of Jesus echoed a thousand times by dozens of people here tonight in this building. But see, this is why John's gospel is so powerful. Because suddenly, a carpenter from Nazareth has appeared on the scene, and he's walking around their streets and into their villages and along their seashores, and he's casually using that holy name of God in reference to himself. And they don't like that. But Jesus had a right to use that name because it was his name. He was God. When Jesus says, I am, he's not just using a pronoun and a verb. He's reaching back to the greatest moment of revelation in Hebrew history, Moses at the burning bush, when God said, I am that I am. And he's using that in reference to himself. Can I tell you something about worshiping the name of Jesus? It is so powerful because the name of Jesus is the New Testament covenant name of God and it enfolds every Old Testament covenant name of God. Hmm. I understand. A couple of weeks ago you had an ice storm here. I hope you all stayed put. I hope you didn't go venture out on the roads. But if you did, it's a pretty dumb thing to do, but if you did, and your vehicle started kind of swerving out of control. You know what happens when a vehicle starts to go out of control on a wet highway, an icy highway? The Pentecostals, you know the first thing we do? Jesus! I'm so glad we know the New Testament covenant name of God. 
Because we don't have to, oh, what's that name? What's that? Which, which name? Uh, Jehovah Rohi, my shepherd? No, I don't need that. Uh, Jehovah Rapha, my healer? No, I need that later probably, but not right now. Are you glad you don't have to figure out which of the covenant names of God to call? When you say Jesus, you've called every Old Testament covenant name of God in one beautiful and powerful name. That's why we worship him. That's why we sing to him. That's why we lift our hands to him. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Now, here's the problem. We love that, but they didn't. Jesus has enraged the Sanhedrin repeatedly because he keeps using this name of God. But this time, it's different because Jesus is getting closer and closer to totally offending them. In the Bible, there's something that I would just call a Hebrew code. I'm not talking about those books called the Bible Code that they wrote a few years ago and JFK's assassination was encoded in the pages of the New Testament. If you believe that, knock yourself out. I don't believe that. But there is a Hebrew code in the Scripture. And they studied the Scripture. It was powerful. Much of the Old Testament is written in a, in a coded form. Uh, let me give you some examples. Psalm 119. If you look at Psalm 119 in the King James Version Bible, you'll see that it's divided into 22 sections of eight verses each. And that's because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you look in a classic King James edition uh, English Bible, you'll see a little squiggly Hebrew letter over the top of each section of eight verses. That's because each of the eight verses in each section begin with the letter over top of that section. So the first eight letters begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second eight verses begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet and so on. It's beautiful and it's powerful. Same thing happens in the book of Lamentations. 22 verses in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. And so it's, it's the Hebrew alphabet. If you could read that in Hebrew, it's the Hebrew alphabet. 22 verses in each of those chapters and the pattern, if it was in English, would be A, B, C, D. And they know they knew how to study that. They, they memorized huge pieces of Scripture by studying those patterns. If you look at Lamentations chapter 3, 66 verses, the pattern is A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C. It's beautiful. All you ladies, we just went through a women's conference. If you look at that beautiful passage in Proverbs 31 about the virtuous woman, here's what you'll notice. 22 verses describe the virtuous woman. And if you take a look at those verses, each verse begins with a Hebrew letter in order of their alphabet. So they could teach their kids and their young people huge sections of the word of God and the Jews got so good at looking at the patterns of the word of God. It was amazing. They missed nothing about the word of God. And it is astounding to me that they knew so much about God's divine arrangement of Scripture, but when the word came in flesh, they totally missed him. One of the details that the Jews were so fanatical about was the name of God. They were so fanatical about that. And so that brings us to the weekend that Jesus is crucified. There's this obscure little verse buried in the law of Moses in the book of Leviticus, and it says this. 
He that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. Buried in the middle of the law of Moses. And now we come to Jesus' trial. And Mark records it this way. Jesus held his peace and answered nothing. And the high priest of Israel, he asked him and said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus looked back at the high priest of Israel. you got to get this picture. That high priest has not spoken the name of God out loud any time in his life. He's not allowed. His father was a high priest. He had never spoken the name of God out loud any time in his life. His grandfather was a high priest. Never spoken the name of God out loud any time in his life. In fact, you go back for 300 years, no one in Israel had spoken the name of God out loud. And now Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, stands face to face with the high priest of Israel looks back at the high priest and the high priest says are you the Christ the son of the blessed and Jesus looks back at him and says I am and then he went on and you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven and at that moment Caiaphas made a terrible dreadful fatal mistake because the law said the high priest is not allowed to rend his clothes but Caiaphas got so angry in that moment he reached up and he rent his garment the Bible says and what do we need any further witnesses and they all condemned Jesus to be guilty of death but do you understand what just happened when the high priest of Israel reached up in anger and ripped his garments. He disqualified himself from serving as the high priest. And at that moment, the high priesthood of Israel passed from Caiaphas and landed on Jesus. So when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't a murder victim. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just a martyr. He was your high priest taking a perfect sacrifice of sinless blood to pay and atone for your sins. You can never talk about Calvary too much. You can never sing about Calvary too much. You can never preach about Calvary too much. That was our high priest taking a perfect sacrifice. Imagine it was his blood. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and he was our high priest. Can you imagine how powerful Calvary actually is? Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then we have such a great high priest. He's passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Apostolics, let's hold fast our profession. Don't let somebody talk you out of this revelation. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So... Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. If his blood's that powerful and his sacrifice is that perfect and he's a high priest who understands us but never failed like us, let's come boldly to his throne because there we will obtain mercy and will find grace to help in the time of need. I got a question for you. Has anybody in the building ever been to that throne of grace and you'd failed and you'd messed up and you made mistakes and you were embarrassed? But you came to the throne of grace and he forgave you and he restored you and he cleansed you and he lifted you up. Oh, he's worthy of your praise. My goodness. Well, let me head toward the end here. 
It's the end is not yet. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> Jesus has enraged the Sanhedrin repeatedly because he keeps using this name of God, but this time it's different. He's done it in a court of law. So under Roman law, the Sanhedrin can't execute anyone, so they rush their prisoner to the governor Pilate, and they demand that he be crucified. Now, Pilate seems to be impressed with Jesus, but they force him to carry out this execution through political pressure. If you don't do what we say, Pilate, if you don't help us here, we're going to tell Caesar on you. Pilate says to them, we don't know what Pilate believed or what he knew about Jesus, but in John 18 he says, take ye him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put any man to death. Watch this. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled signifying what death he should die. If the Jews had put him to death, he would have been stoned for blasphemy. But that's not how Jesus was supposed to die prophetically. Jesus had already said, And I, who, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Jesus had already said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, something's going to happen on that day. You will know that I am. So you can almost feel, as you read the Gospel of John, you can almost feel prophecy starting to accelerate. And, and, and so Pilate releases the robber Barabbas. He has Jesus scourged at the whipping post. He allows his soldiers to mock Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And the bloodthirsty Jewish leaders still cause the crowd to cry out, crucify him, crucify. Pilate talks with Jesus and says, I find no fault in him. And he tries three times to set him free, but to no avail. Matthew's gospel records that Pilate, he's so grief-stricken that he washes his hands in front of the whole mob and he says, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. And Pilate's wife even has a dream about Jesus and sends her husband a note don't have anything to do with that just man. I've suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But you see, the Sanhedrin is manipulating Pilate by threatening to report him to Caesar. So he's powerless to do anything to set Jesus free. John 19, watch this. From thenceforth, Pilate tried, he sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out and said, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes him a king, he's... Speaking against Caesar. You've got to kill him, Pilate. So Pilate can do nothing, brothers and sisters. But maybe there is one little thing he can do. Maybe Pilate, who's powerless to prevent this execution, maybe he can at least recognize what this good man said about himself. Maybe that's why all through the trials, Pilate keeps referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews, even when he knows it irritates them all. He has no idea that he is fulfilling prophecy when he presents Jesus to the crowd early that morning and he says, behold your king. Pilate has no idea that he did that at the exact same time the Passover lamb was being prepared to be sacrificed that afternoon. He has no idea that he's just walking on top of prophecy. 
John 19. It was the preparation of the Passover. And it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, no, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. And then he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. And they seized hold of Jesus and they took him away. And they took him to Golgotha, the place of the skull, a place of execution just outside the walls of Jerusalem. It sat on the highest point of Mount Moriah. And you can feel the streams of prophecy starting to converge on that hill because that was the hill where Abraham offered Isaac. That was the hill where David offered that costly sacrifice and stopped a plague. That was the hill where Solomon built a glorious temple. That was the hill where Jeremiah sat in a cave and wept over Jerusalem. You can feel the, the streams of prophecy all converging on that spot. John 19 and 17, he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. And Pilate is powerless to prevent the execution, but he's not quite finished yet. Whether Pilate understands what he is about to do or not, I cannot tell you. Scripture doesn't indicate what Pilate believed about Jesus or what he knew about Jesus, but we do know what he did. John 19 and 19. And Pilate wrote a title, and he put it on the cross. And the writing was this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's the title. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And the title was written in three languages, Hebrew for the Jews, Greek for the Greeks, Latin for the Romans. Then said the chief priest to Pilate, don't write it that way. Don't write the king of the Jews. Change it, Pilate. Write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate looked back at them. And by now he's aggravated. He said, what I have written, I have written written. Now, if you've never seen this, it'll blow your mind. If you have seen it, it'll light up your spirit. It's an amazing thing. Written over the head of Jesus is this epitaph. It's written in three languages. The Greeks have no problem at all with it. The Romans have no problem at all with it. But when those Jewish leaders who knew the law and who knew all the patterns of Scripture, and they knew all about the name of God, and they knew about how all the verses in the first letter of words could begin with letters in pattern. When they saw it, it was trouble. Because written over Jesus' head in Hebrew was Yeshua Hanazari Vimelech Hayehudim, reading from right to left. That's what the Jewish leaders saw. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But when they looked at that, Yeshua Hanazari, Vimelech Hayehudim, all of a sudden they realized they had a problem because they could see a condemning acrostic because the first letter of each of those words spelled out Y-H-W-H. Written over Jesus' head as his blood was shed on the cross was Yahweh. God was putting up a billboard to tell everybody, this isn't a murder victim. This isn't a martyr. I am shedding my own blood for the sins of my people. Jesus was truly the lamb slain from the foundation of of the world. 
That wasn't a carpenter's blood. That wasn't a rabbi's blood. Paul describes it in Acts 20, 28 as the blood of God which purchased the church. When you walk into this building, it's just a building. When you walk into this sanctuary, it's just a sanctuary because the church isn't about wood and carpet and sheetrock. The church is the people that are gathered here. Do you understand? Look around for a second. You are seated and standing among the people that are so precious to God. When God wanted a mountain, he spoke it into existence. When God wanted a lake, he spoke it into existence. But when God wanted a church, it cost him his own precious blood to buy a redeemed people from every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue. And if you're happy about that, I wish you'd ring the rafters with praise to the Lord who has saved us. Jesus is the I am that I am. Jesus is almighty God. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm almost done. But it's even more beautiful and it's even more powerful when you look at the tetragrammaton itself, the YHWH or YHVH. Because here's what I've learned about the Hebrew language. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but I can read and I can study. In the Hebrew alphabet, each letter in the Hebrew alphabet is associated with an image. I did a study with our church at home. Think of like Egyptian hieroglyphics or Chinese letters where they're, they're, they're symbols. And, and it's amazing because each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is associated with an image. So the little letter Yud, the image behind Yud is a hand. Hey, that big letter, uh, it's associated with a window, and that's why it can be translated behold because you look through a window to behold something. And Vav, that long, skinny letter, it even looks like what it represents. It's a nail. You've got to understand this. Hidden in the name of God from the moment he revealed it to Moses was this. Behold the hand, behold the nail. That was encoded in the name of God when he revealed it to Moses at the burning bush. So when Jesus was crucified, all around the cross, creation spoke loudly. The sun darkened and the earth shook and the rocks split and the graves opened and the veil of the temple was ripped apart. All around the cross, creation spoke. But over the cross, God spoke. Behold the hand, behold the nail. Yahweh is dying on this cross for the sins of his people. Music, come on back and get ready, would you? Even after their enemy was dead, the chief priests were still so nervous that in Matthew's gospel, they came to Pilate and they said, you got to get some guards and guard that tomb. Imagine, this is a dead body that's just been taken off the cross. you got to guard that guy. Pilate said, you use your own guards, and he says something quite funny to me. In Matthew's account in chapter 27, he said, go your way. Make the tomb as sure as you can. I think Pilate was kind of taunting them at that moment. If that man said he's going to rise from the dead, you make the tomb as sure as you can. If he said he's going to rise from the dead, chances are he's probably going to rise from the dead. And then we come to what we now call Easter Sunday morning. 
and a woman named Mary is at the tomb of Jesus. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down, and she looked into the sepulcher. I've been there several times. And she saw two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And that's one of the most powerful moments of revelation in all of Scripture. Mary looked into that tomb. What did she see? She saw a low, flat stone bed. But on that bed, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the foot where the body of Jesus had been laying. When Mary looked into the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, there's only one other place in all of Hebrew theology where you see two angels facing each other on a flat surface. It's the Ark of the Covenant. When she looked into the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, she saw a perfect representative of the most famous article in all of Hebrew theology. You know why? Because between those angels on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle dwelt the Shekinah presence of God. Do you understand what had been in that tomb on that weekend? The Shekinah presence of God dwelt in that body that had been laying in that tomb. That's why Jesus could come out of the grave under his own power because he wasn't just a man. He was almighty God in a body. Uh. Last scripture or two or three. It's like bubble gum. You get chewing on it. It gets bigger and bigger. John's gospel culminates with the, the revelation of a man that's named Doubting Thomas. Please hear me. We still call him Doubting Thomas 2,000 years after he died. You know why we call him Doubting Thomas? Because he missed a church service. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. He didn't get to the early service. Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples and Thomas missed it. And Thomas, the disciples came to him and said, Thomas, we've seen him. He's alive. He's not dead. He's not in the grave. And Thomas said to them, guys, I love you. We've been disciples and we followed him. But I saw him die. I saw the blood pour out of his body. I saw the nails. I saw the spear. I saw them take his slumped over lifeless body down from the cross and while I love you you're delusional guys there's no way that he could be alive after going through all of that Thomas says to the other disciples he would have to appear to me and he would have to let me put my finger in the nail prints in his hands and thrust my hand into that gaping hole in his side and Jesus is so merciful, brothers and sisters, that he did appear to Thomas the second time. And when Thomas realizes the significance of mortal wounds in the body of a man who's standing there talking to him, any normal human being, that gaping hole in Jesus' side, those gaping wounds in his hands, any normal man would have bled out in seconds from those horrendous wounds. And Thomas, it suddenly hits him. I'm standing here talking to Jesus, and he's living. And for the very first time ever, Thomas grabs two words, kyrios, which means master, and theos, which means almighty God.
And for the very first time ever, and John records this, and the reason he records it is because it's the last word about Jesus. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. <laughs> You're not just my master who walked with me by the seashore. You're not just the great teacher and the great rabbi. You're my master and your almighty God. And 2,000 years later, this good man and this pastoral team and this church still preaches the very same revelation that Jesus is not part of God. Jesus is almighty God. That's why there's power in his name to forgive you of your sins. That's why there's power in his name to deliver you from that sickness in your body. That's why there's power in his name to restore your family. Stand with me. And on that day when Thomas said those words of revelation, Jesus wheeled around and he said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. But Thomas... Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, someday there's going to be a group of people in Potts Camp, Mississippi. They never walked with me. They never sat at a meal with me. They never got to talk to me in the flesh. They never laid eyes on my face. But Thomas, someday... There's going to be a group of apostolic people that are going to receive the very same revelation that you just got. That I am not just a teacher, a rabbi. I'm not just like God or sort of part of God. I am almighty God in a body of flesh. Why do you think everywhere the apostles went, they just kept preaching the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, because they knew that if you speak the name of Jesus, all power is in that name. Why do you think we spent the first part of this service worshiping the name of Jesus, lifting up the name of Jesus, praying in the name of Jesus, preaching in the name of Jesus? It's because there's such revelation and power in that name that anything can be changed when that name is prayed over you. Before we come to the altar tonight, I'd like you to grab the hand of somebody next to you and lift every hand in the building that we could. As a choir of uplifted hands, lift your voice up higher than those uplifted hands and call on the name of Jesus. Worship the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. Give glory to the name of Jesus. His presence is here, and where his presence is, his name is activated. Where his presence is, his power lies. I'm calling for somebody that you've got a sickness in your body or a sickness in your family. You've got a need in your life or you've got a need in your home. You've got a situation in your family or you've got a situation in your mind. Whatever the issue is, Jesus is here tonight and in his presence, his powerful name can fix it. So right now, out of every corner of this sanctuary, 
I want a crowd to come to this altar and fill this altar. When you get here, don't bury your head in the carpet. Stand up, lift your hands, lift your face, lift your voice, and use every great word you have to give glory to the name of Jesus because in his presence, there are miracles. In his presence, there's deliverance. In his presence, there's healing. In his presence, anything can happen. Anything can happen. One more time up here. I want you to do what you did back there. Look around and grab somebody by the hand. Lift that hand with yours. And together, just begin to worship the name of Jesus. He's my Lord. And he's my God. I understand who he is. His power is great because he is great. His power is eternal because he's eternal.
Jesus. He's working. His name is working. His name is working. There's no other name like his name. Would you reach over, get a hold of as many people as you can as we're praying? This church is called to be a witness for this revelation and for this truth and for this apostolic message. Not just in this community, but in these surrounding counties. Would you pray that the revelation of the name of Jesus would flow like a river through every family in this church, through every person in this church, every workplace, every school, every college and university, would you pray that the revelation of the name of Jesus would flow like a rushing river through every county, through every city and town, through Oxford and through Holly Springs, through New Albany. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In that name, there's healing. You can be healed right now in the name of Jesus. In that name, there's deliverance. Addiction can be broken in your life right now because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let revelation flow. Let the knowledge of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea.
more time, can we lift our hands and praise the name of Jesus? Oh, that's right. His name is worthy. Don't just lift your hands, but say his name. I praise you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I know we can just say I praise you and I worship you and he hears us, but there's something powerful released when that name comes out of your mouth. Devils tremble. I love you, Jesus. I give my life to you, Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. Presents it so strongly that every single baptism that happened in the Bible was in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus, maybe when you were baptized, they said, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And Father, He is a Father, He's our Heavenly Father. And He was the Son born of a virgin. And if there's ever been a Holy Spirit, it was His. But none of those are His name. So when we baptize, we say, just like Peter said, just like the Apostle said, in the name of Jesus Christ. And when that name is mentioned, it's like when you sign your name on a check, and the bank sees your name, they know there's authority to release funds from that account because your name is there. And when you say the name of Jesus in baptism, Heaven's Bank releases redemptive power. And every sin you've ever committed is washed away by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. We ought to praise His name again right now. There's healing in the name, and there's deliverance in the name. There's peace in the name, and there's joy in the name. Somebody ought to say his name right now. Jesus! 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 Oh, do you feel it? I feel him here right now. we close we're going to pray again we're going to do it in Jesus name sister Kim Allen has gone to the emergency room she's been having a problem with some allergic reactions she thought she might have, have understood what it was but she's there now because of another one brother Daniel Riley at about 28 years old had to have bypass surgery the last few weeks he's been having a very high heart rate and some issues and uh, he's going here in a couple of days for some tests. His, his, his blood pressure, his heart rate went, went through the roof a little bit ago. And he's home. They said if it don't go down, he's going to have to go to the ER. I believe God can move right now. How I many is going to help me pray in Jesus' name?
Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I plead your blood for healing over Sister Kim and over Brother Daniel by the authority of your word. And by the power of your name, God, I rebuke the problem and the cause of it. And I thank you for healing. I thank you, God, for your help. I thank you for answered prayer. And God, for every need that's scattered across this auditorium tonight. God, if it's a spiritual need, a financial need, a, re a relationship need, God, whatever the need may be, you are the solution and the power of your name is the answer. And so, God, I pray in the name of Jesus over this body of believers tonight. And, God, we thank you for the great, awesome power of the name of Jesus. Give the Lord a great hand clap of praise. Amen. Again, again, we want to invite all of our guests. If you are a guest, we invite you to go to the discipleship room. If you go through the vestibule, past the restrooms, into the prayer room on the right, we have some snacks. We'd love to get a moment to meet with you. If you brought somebody, bring them with you to the discipleship room so we can greet them. God bless you. You are dismissed Wednesday night. The Irwin Family Missionaries to New Zealand. God bless you, and you're dismissed in the name of the Lord.